Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. When you're an American Express Platinum card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count. Or, shoot that, shoot that! And even... Checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Hey, everybody. We got a great one today for a change. Today with us, Judd Apatow. Now, Judd is, uh, you probably know him as the creative force behind oh so much. 40-year-old virgin, knocked up, a brilliant, brilliant film, Trainwreck, Amy Schumer's big screen debut. One of the big writers and was a director on Larry Sanders, uh, and a mutual friend of ours, Gary Shanley. He produces lots of movies, Talladega Nights. He did TV and HBO thing. Girls, you wouldn't think, you know, a guy would do girls, but he did. He did, and that uh, that was a real achievement. The Big Sick, that's a movie that that I really loved. I loved so many of Bridesmaids. Wow, that was uh, an amazing film. So th- this is a, a, a writer, producer, director, and actually does a great stand-up uh, comedy. Uh, Judd Apatow is joining us today. I was out in L.A. a few weeks ago, and I uh, visited Judd in his office. He's, he's uh, working on editing uh, this film he's doing with Pete Davidson, and I saw a number of scenes, and it looked really funny. And really kind of uh, touching. So I think you're going to really, really like this one. You know, for a change. Judd is uh, probably, to comedy, what somebody who is great in something is to that thing. I'm the Ted Cruz of comedy. (laughs) No, 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 no. That's a Smigel joke. Smigel had a, a lazy comedian joke, which is doing that is like doing something like that. Exactly. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> That's okay. the one kind of joke I've never been good at, just turning things into a metaphor. I never do that. I tried it once, and it worked so well. It got such a big laugh, but I just my brain never thinks... This is like when like a volcano going off on a Bing Bang. Like I never think that way. Okay, now Judd is uh, director, producer, writer, and and comedian yourself. You're a stand-up. Mm-hmm. I saw your. Actually, I saw you in Washington. I saw you in Minneapolis. Yes, you were just better in Minneapolis, even though you're really good in Washington. But you were just like it. It's what it's supposed to be, right? Yes. Well, that was the difference. Also, the the show in Minneapolis was at a theater. Uh-huh. And the, the show in D.C. was, was at in a, a comedy club. club. Yeah, yeah. And also in the middle of the show in Minneapolis, a woman started screaming from the balcony trying to pitch me a movie idea. And so and you did. And I you allowed her, her to go on the stage and pitch me the movie idea, which happens 
more frequently than you would assume. And you bring, how often do you bring them on stage if they pitch it? I'm always willing to to bring them on stage. Uh, this but, may this may not be a good thing. Oh for, yes, maybe I shouldn't say there. that. But I uh, but I find that when it's a, a a bad idea, I don't really need to say anything, <laughs> and, and then it's funny. And if it's a good idea, my shock that it's a good idea is funny. So it's not as scary a proposition as no. Well, imagine. actually, she, I, as I recall. From that evening, she had a bad idea. It wasn't the strongest idea. Yeah, and as I recall, you made a lot out of it. Well, usually, (laughs) if you you ask a lot of questions about a bad idea, and you force them to really dig into what they're thinking, something something weird happens. Yeah, I think something struck (laughs) you as something set off your, why would you do that? Uh, Yeah, whatever that, (laughs) what, what are you talking about? kind of nerve and then so we got into that it, it just reminds you why in a year you might see three good movies because if everyone in the whole world was pitching a movie yeah there still would be three good ones it's just very <laughs> well, hard to come up with a, a great movie idea Doesn't okay you don't know trying. but but uh, okay let's put it in context though you're out there doing stand-up and stand-up is kind of you know i would say your fourth or fifth love or not love but what you're known for, right? You're known That's more true. as a, you're known as a writer, director, and producer. I think yes. more. Yes, and that's why they're pitching movies because yes. you're a writer, director, and producer. They may not even know I'm there to do stand up. They do. They, they may your see it bill... as a career opportunity. For them. <laughs> no, your bill was a stand up, and you're doing great stand up, and that was, um, it's a, it's a form of audience work, wasn't it? In a way, it is yes, yes, which isn't always my my forte. When I I wasn't doing stand up, I didn't do stand up for about twenty years. I did it when I was young, and then I I started writing, and the writing just seemed to go way better than the stand up <laughs> career. Then I started doing stand up again. But one of the things I did right before I started doing stand up is I would go to UCB and do these shows called uh, How to Make Thousands. That's the Writing Upright Screen Citizens Please. Brigade. Yeah. So I, I put on for our listeners. Yeah. By the way, the show. Mm-hmm is normally it, it's very bifurcated show we do a lot of public policy yeah so i'll have andy slavitt who is the head of cms uh, medicare yes. and medicaid and he's also the guy who saved the healthcare.gov website yes. impressive guy and we we he's been on twice about healthcare. then i have dana carvey on and mm-hmm. and and dana and i will talk about snl and how we wrote uh, political comedy, yes. mainly Jim Downey and I. You are uh, not as famous as, say, Dana or, or Andy. You're more famous than Andy <laughs> Slavitt, and he'd be the first to admit it. But you're doing this uh, this special. Well, I produce a an HBO special that uh, is Gary Goldman's uh, performance of a uh, of something that he calls the Great Depression. Uh, Michael Bonfiglio directed it. It has stand-up and some documentary elements. And uh, and Gary, who's a brilliant comedian, he, he has had bouts with depression. And he had a terrible one a few years ago and had to move back in with his mom. After and, being in a mental hospital. And then he slowly started doing stand-up again and wrote a stand-up routine about it. And it's really an incredible special. And uh, you know, I'm very interested in these types of performances i produced a special called uh, career suicide mm-hmm. which was uh, chris gethard's 
piece about his mental health issues and his suicide attempts. And he just got thousands and thousands of uh, messages on Facebook uh, from people who were like, thank God you're talking about this. No yeah, one ever talks about this. This is a this. service that sure. these guys are doing. And if you survive and you, and you know you sharing this experience, it gives me hope that I'm going to be able to figure this out or get to a better place. And it, it and Chris always said, this didn't exist when I, when I was young. There was no one expressing what it was like, what their their feelings were, how they struggled to be a, a, a way for him to find this you know, uh, some signposts about how to get through it, how to not be hopeless. So when I saw Gary's act, I thought, well, this is another great opportunity. Mm -hmm. And, and, and and it's also very funny. It's not especially dark. That's what, that's what really got me about uh, this monologue that you sent me. But what I got from that was Everybody had at one time been depressed. That's what I got from listening to this thing because everyone was on top of every joke. They knew exactly what he was talking about. And so that sort of made me think, "Mm mm-hmm. Some days it's hard to get out of bed and people say, why is it hard to get out of bed? And I I think I know why. This is my my theory. The, The thing they don't tell you about life when you're growing up is this. Life... Hmm? <laughs> it's every single day. And, and look, I worked a lot of mental health in, in the Senate. One of the things that my hero, Paul Wellstone, did was first mental health parody bill. And he did it with Pete Domenici. That's when uh, people used to do bipartisan things. Yes. And what that did was say uh, insurance policies that have mental health cover mental health and it have to do it equally with the physical health, with the other health. And in ACA, we made sure that every policy had to have mental health and, and addiction uh, services. Yeah, and it's life-changing for people because so many people don't get help because they can't afford it, and it's just as simple as that. Well, because of the ACA also, they've expanded Medicaid. You know what? The last three states to vote by referendum to get expanded Medicaid are, I mean, I know you don't know, but this may surprise you. Idaho, Nebraska, and Oklahoma. Sure. The people of Idaho, Nebraska, and Oklahoma said, we want Medicaid expansion. Those are incredibly conservative states. Yes. And I think the only states that don't have it are like Alabama and Mississippi. And But also, what does conservative mean to most people? Uh, well, I don't want the people... government doing anything is yes. basically what it means. Yes, but I think it's probably morphed into something different these days. But I know the senators from those states. Yeah. and uh, They're not fighting for it. No, they, they, in fact, and this is something we should be talking and talking and talking about the selection cycle is they lost 40 house seats because people realize what's in the ACA and the, the bills they came up with to replace it were awful. And Trump has doubled down and gone to the justice department and said, you're going to support this bill working its way to the Supreme court, which would eliminate ACA. 
I have a political question. Mm -hmm. What is the thinking behind that? Like, what are the percentages of people who are desperately trying to get rid of Obamacare that you would ever take that position in any situation? That is such a good question because I wrote a piece after that. I said, what about losing 40 seats don't you understand? It, it, it was crazy. And that's why it's crazy for us not to say, okay, we can argue about how we do universal. We can argue about whether single payer is better. We shouldn't be spending 20 minutes in a debate arguing about whether you allow private health insurance in a single payer system. Mm -hmm. And that's what we did early on. We should be talking about Trump among all the other horrible things he's doing on climate and on uh, you know income inequality in terms of the tax cuts and the deficit he has doubled down and wants to get rid of the the affordable care act completely yeah i i never understand that because it doesn't make sense everyone, why you don't understand everyone it. Needs, <laughs> i mean everyone needs uh, health insurance and so it, it feels like such an odd issue to think you're going to get all the support for because Trump's entire election was based on, let me get rid of it. I, I'm, I'm going to have the best idea for what to replace it with. Now, all these years later, he never has presented an idea of what the replacement is. He's, he's always stayed he had with one idea. What was that? It was to allow health insurance companies to uh, cross state lines. Mm. That was his one idea. And it was a just a stupid idea. There are six states in the country already that allow insurance companies from out of state to insure there, and uh, like Washington and Nebraska and Maine and Rhode Island and Kentucky, there's six of them, and no insurance company has done it. And that's <laughs> that's because you have to do a provider network. And a provider network means you got to find the doctors in the hospital. And what he did not understand, Trump, is that people like to go to a doctor in their state. Yeah, that helps. So <laughs> the insurance company has to go in the state and find the hospitals, doctors, <laughs> the, yeah. the, uh, the nurses, the therapists. They have to do that. And if you're going to do that, you might as well incorporate in the state because that takes a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of expertise. Did you know that learning actually makes a sound? It's true. Listen, that's the sound of you learning a new language with Babbel. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. For example... Let's say you're in Berlin and you want to visit the Führer bunker. It's pretty simple, actually. Wo ist der Führer bunker? Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babel is better. One study found that using Babel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Here is a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L 
dot com slash Franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. You can live out your master chef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Well, whenever I think about healthcare, you know, I, I, when my mom, who passed away from cancer, was alive, you know, just what it was like for someone with insurance, what a nightmare it was to pay for it. Oh, yeah. We're trying to figure out what was covered, what wasn't covered. I just you know, put together this book of things I found when going through Gary Shandling's stuff when I did the documentary. And one of the things were these text messages. So Gary was ill. And, and I always think about this because I didn't know if I should put it in the book because it had to do with his health. Because I always think about people who don't go to the doctor because they can't afford it. So they're delaying all the time. They're delaying going because well, they don't know if things the are worst thing covered. You can do. That's the worst thing. What Medicaid expansion did was mm-hmm. make sure that people had regular care. And that's yes. what keeps you from dying. And so when no. things happen, people are like, oh, it hurts, but I, it'll probably be better. But what I found in Gary's stuff were, were these texts. And so the, there's, there's a, a day and he, and he texts his... his uh, this, this uh, man who would drive him, and he's like, yeah, I'm not feeling good. I think I'm going to go to the doctor. And the guy wasn't in town. He was driving somewhere else in San Diego. And then Gary's like, all right, well, maybe I'll go, I'll go tomorrow. And then in the morning, he's, he's texting with the driver, and he's like saying, okay, we're going to leave at 8.30 to go over there. And then he texts him again. Oh, the doctor just pushed it in an hour. Mm. You know? So This isn't the... And then he died. died. And then he died. That's when he died. And then he died. Was this from a a chronic illness? Is this something he had over some time? Well, he had pancreatitis. Right. And he had some thyroid issues. He had just had some serious dental work done. And he had a a blood clot that, you know, went into uh, his uh, heart or his lungs. And and that's what killed him. Uh, Yeah. What's it called? A pulmonary embolism? Is that what it is? Yeah. The heartbreaking part is you, you look at that and you go, he just should have gotten the fucking Uber or whatever and gotten to the hospital. But we're talking about an entire country of people, millions of people who are not jumping in the car to get to the hospital because it's a financial nightmare to do that. Yeah, but this is Gary at that point in his life. is it, it has There's no financial problem yeah. there. Can you imagine how everyone else is delaying? You know, we're all hesitant to... Well, get things looked point, at and checked out and all that. That's why preventive care yeah. is completely covered. Yeah. So if you do a checkup, it's completely covered. You yeah. pay nothing for it. Yeah. And this is why the ACA did Medicaid expansion so that people aren't, can be on Medicaid and, and Medicaid pays for you to go to an emergency room. And Americans got to understand that. What happened was is that when Trump won... They now had the House, the Senate, and the White House, and they had been saying for seven and a half years, we're going to repeal and replace. And so, well, they had the whole government, so you go, well, okay, let's see what you got. And they had nothing. Yeah. 20 million would lose their insurance. Uh, People with pre-existing conditions, not guaranteed coverage. 
and on and on. And people looked at that, looked at what they were offering and said, I like the Affordable Care Act. They found out what was in the Affordable Care Act Mm -hmm. and they went, I like that. And uh, that's why we need to pound, pound, pound. And Trump is just an idiot. He doesn't know anything. He said, I'm going to replace it with something terrific. Well, at the end of the, uh, I remember the end of the election cycle, Trump was, had some speeches where he literally would say to the audience, I'm going to make all of your dreams come true. Yes. I mean, the, the extent of his promises were so crazy. <laughs> and I, I think a lot of people believed it literally because- He said that, didn't he? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I do think that one of the reasons why he won was just a guy with no record. Like, the whole country was like, well- He's never failed at being president before. He's never failed at being a politician before. And now he has this very specific record of every promise he made, everything he said he would fix, that, let's say, the majority he didn't, he was not able to, uh, the vast majority. And I just don't know how in, in running for re-election it would be that difficult to say, well, here's what he said about the opioid crisis. Here's what he said about health care. Here's... What he said about infrastructure, infrastructure, the, the all the things that didn't happen. Infrastructure project that you see around, you know, everywhere yes. around the country. You see, <laughs> but I have I, I have a philosophical question for you, Al. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, when you look at the world, what I always think is, it feels like the human race is not forward thinking. So we have problems with uh, gun safety and we know you know if we didn't have these guns you know 30 40,000 people a year would would probably be alive but we like them and so we're not willing to think ahead and go I'm gonna make a sacrifice for the greater good and with the environment you know we all know yeah I probably should eat less meat and that's I hear that's good and I could fly less maybe I'll get the solar panels but for the most part, people aren't willing to make sacrifices. They don't even talk about saving energy anymore. I remember when I was a kid, it was always like, shut the lights when you leave the room. But isn't it the cupcake test? You know, the cupcake test where you leave a kid in a room with a cupcake and you say to the kid, the cupcake, it's, it's kind of stale. Don't eat it. I'll be back in 10 minutes with some fresh cupcakes. And if the kid has to eat the cupcake, you know that they, they can't delay gratification. And, and they say that they can predict how successful the kid will be uh, in his life or her life based on if they can delay gratification. Yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's one of these things, if you don't eat it, I'll come back with two. Yes. That was another uh, way that... And, Here, and, here's the thing. But isn't that our whole country that like we're not willing to sacrifice anything to prevent the world from ending? I mean, honestly, with, with climate change, with everything, you don't feel any great energy. And I wonder when cities start really going underwater, and there's some articles about how that's beginning to happen, is it like schools getting shot up where people just get used to it and every day you hear of a new city that disappeared but you still don't adjust your life well you're asking me about human nature and i don't know any better than you do but climate change obviously is about something in that most people think of that's in the future sure and but i now have four grandchildren and those grandkids, you know, I don't want them 50 years from now saying, Grandpa, 
you were a senator and you knew there was climate change, why didn't you do anything about it? And also, why are you alive, Grandpa? You're 118. <laughs> and that is one of the delayed gratification one. Guns is a whole different thing. I don't think that's about people... I mean, people feel strongly right now about what yeah. they feel strongly well, about. Well, it's a certain type of selfishness when people say, don't register guns or don't, I need uh, war-ready guns. I mean, we I guess maybe we all think, oh, if you need guns for protection or for sport, uh, there's a place for that. But, Hunt, but Hunting. That people don't want to, to sacrifice for each other when you think about, like, I, you know, uh, I've just thought a lot about Gary Shandling from putting this book together about him. And what he would come back to with everything was we're either trying to get rid of our ego and figure out ways to help each other and realizing that we are one or oh, that's not. so Buddhist. It is exactly <laughs> disgustingly Buddhist. But, yeah. but that we there is no way out of it by being the type of uh, people who say i'm in it for myself i mean trump is very much a i'm in it for america screw everybody else you take care of your your stuff we'll take care of ours but that's that is a recipe for the destruction of the i have a character i'm working on who's uh bernie sanders uh crazy right-wing identical twin (laughs) so it's like doesn't everybody see that the only jobs are created by entrepreneurs who are willing to risk their own capital and work hard? The government doesn't create jobs. And so, and then he's on the floor of the Senate. And so, sir, are you not Senator Sanders, but in fact his identical right-wing twin? Yes, I am. And it's like, well, I'm afraid uh, we're going to have to ask you to leave. We'll have to get the sergeant of arms to remove you. That's fine with me. But I'll be back. They can't tell us apart. <laughs> so I'm working on that. <laughs> but part of the gun thing is this. Oh, by the way, you said how many? I don't know. It's like 50,000 Americans are killed. Like, I think a majority of those are suicides. Yes. So talking about deaths of despair. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what the Goldman special is about that. Yes. is about despair um, and the opioids that's the overdoses from that and that's tied to our fucking economy which is there are people in areas of our country who don't really have a lot of hope economically and we're not I don't see anybody I don't see Donald Trump as like well, he's rolling up his sleeve and making sure that we here <laughs> in yes. Indiana or in, in Pennsylvania or in West Virginia are going to have jobs. Do they notice at any point? I mean, you read all these articles about what, what he's done to the farmers, and obviously he's, he's becoming a socialist and giving tens of billions of dollars to the farmers that they lost uh, because of, of uh, the tariffs with China. Uh, but what do you think? Do you think the country is noticing? I always think this. How many people's lives did get better under Trump and how many people's lives didn't? Well, the economy grew. So the number of people who don't have a job, who want a job, is is very low. Now, the average pay for people did not go up that much. 
And so the average worker who is uh, disgruntled now, they're still disgruntled. They, they didn't get what the corporations got when he said, we're going to do this giant, <laughs> giant tax cut, and it's going to pay for itself. It's going to pay for itself because we're going to create all these. And no, the corporations did exactly what we predicted. They bought back their own stock. And so the money went to their investors and to them. So it went to those at the top. He hasn't started a war. You know, I mean, he's probably the most disgusting human being that's been our president, and that includes... I don't know, eight or nine presidents who own slaves. So that's bad. That's bad. But if you look at George W. Bush, he had a surplus at the beginning. And at the end, he gave Obama the worst economy since the Great Depression. He took us to war under false pretenses. So you could argue that Trump's a lot better than George W. Bush. Well, if he doesn't take us to war... And, and if that's the bar, if that's the bar, <laughs> if, if that is the bar, it's a, but it's a, it is an important bar. Uh, but I let's talk about yes. comedy. Yes, let's talk about comedy. comedy uh, I think comedy is very helpful yes. in periods like this. Mm-hmm. You do kind of everything in comedy, I think. And one of the things you do is, uh, I would imagine, and have done, is serve like re- hire people. Mm-hmm. To write, I used to kind of the first couple years of SNL, people would submit packages and we'd read them stupidly, because then we finally got sued, and uh, then we said you can't do that. But what do you look for when someone is new and young? What do you look for just to help anyone who wants to? get into this field mm-hmm. what are you looking for well it depends Pretty on sure. what we're what you know yeah. we're hiring for mm-hmm. uh if if i'm looking for a movie and i'm talking to pete davidson and i know that his he has a, a very interesting life he's been through a lot and there's probably a story to tell there i think like gary i'm very interested in blurring the line between the truth and fiction. You know, Gary would, you know, do the Larry Sanders show. He had been a talk show host. The the show isn't true. It didn't happen. But you know, it comes from his feelings and his experiences. And I think in movies, I'm attracted to that. So Pete Davidson and Dave Cyrus and I wrote a movie that is inspired by some events. I just saw Pete's some life. of the scenes as you're you're editing now. Yes, yes. Very funny. Very funny and very touching. And um Part of Pete's life is that his father died at, in 9-11. His father was a firefighter, right? That's true. And in the movie, uh, his father is a, a firefighter who lost his life, not in 9-11. Not 9/11 yeah. But what we're, we're exploring is grieving and how people are affected by that type of loss. Mm-hmm. And that's what's interesting to me. Uh, and I think with movies like The Big Sick or Trainwreck or Bridesmaids, they all start with somebody having a story to tell or some emotional issue they want to explore. Well, I think you have said that if you're writing a comedy, that it should be you should be able to write it as a drama. In other words, the story should have the same kind of arc 
or mm-hmm. not arc necessarily, but it should work as a drama in yes. in terms of the plot points, and yes. then it just you make it funny. I mean, I I've always looked at it like James Brooks's work, in terms of endearment or or broadcast the news. I it, it, that those movies those are great would be movies, amazing without the laughs, yeah. and, and, and it's incredible that they're also so funny. You can have both being dramatic. And uh, I was very inspired by people like him. So when I meet people, you know, I how I did Trainwreck was I was just listening to Howard Stern and, and Amy Schumer was on and she was talking about her dad who has MS and she was so sweet and also so darkly funny about mm-hmm. it that I thought, well, that it just feels like a story. It doesn't feel like a stand-up routine. It feels right. like there's a movie in this. And so I asked her if she wanted to try to figure something out you know, Kumail Nanjiani and, and, and Emily and came she, in and yeah. they had their story which became the big that was sec. a beautiful movie um, but I also love movies that are just made up and, and silly but there's something great when people are really digging deep into their own stuff to to find a, a, a story and, and comedy I'm just very attracted to that you know when you write on a TV show and you're looking for staff it's not that different there are people who just have very clear strong funny Voices. Yeah, that's kind of more what I was asking. Yeah. Because I would sometimes have to read somebody's yeah. nephew's stuff, yeah. and yeah. I'd go like, you can tell, right? You can tell, yeah. like, first sure. page. I, I remember Owen Wilson told me that James Brooks used to say that he could open up a script to any page and read <laughs> one page and know if it was worth starting uh-huh. the script. Uh, you just get it. Well, I would get write. packages sometimes, and they'd say, "I go like, well, uh, look, what I'm looking for is kind of an original voice." You know, this is at SNL, so you're looking for an original voice, and you're obviously looking for funny. And I, you know, I, you know, keep working at it. I can write more. <laughs> you, you ever get that? Yes, yes, yes. Which I think is hilarious. I mean, that is, I don't, I don't know what I'm doing. There's also people who have come to me. I used to have this more, which was, how do I become a comedy writer? And I'd say, are you writing comedy? <laughs> and they always say no. And they say no. And I go, <laughs> okay, well. And then I remember one guy who was somebody's relative came to me while I was doing a show. And he asked me that question. I said, are you writing comedy? No. Uh, I'm, I'm on the varsity basketball. T- it was like Columbia. I'm on the basketball team, and I'm going like, okay, um, would you expect like someone who's going to get hired for the NBA, say, had never played basketball? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what what yeah. the hell are you talking about? Well, it's just so much work writing, and you're, you spend so much time alone. Like, no one wants to be alone in a room. Well, you can That's why you write with other other people. But you you could get to that place but you know to launch your career you're generally alone and then you have to earn your way into those rooms if you're writing for a tv show i always wanted to get a job writing for snl i never could i when sandler was there when you were there i was writing sketches for jim carrey i couldn't get a job at a living color but jim carrey would just give me cash to sit with him and write sketches Ah. they would do all of them on a living color and i would watch them on a living color so he (laughs) completely stole from you uh, well, he paid I mean, me. He paid, he paid me. You, did he pay you? <laughs> and he tried to get me a job on the uh, show, and oh, he just okay. would not hire me. 
Uh, I mean, I know he paid you, but you don't get you didn't get credit or residuals. No, 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 not at all. And I was thrilled to do it uh, because it did launch my career. But I couldn't get hired on the show, and then I tried to get hired at SNL, and I and I couldn't get a job writing for SNL. And then Ben which, Stiller. And then I met Ben Stiller, and we created Ben Stiller's sketch show. Right. And the only reason why I did that was because I couldn't get on staff, so I wound up running a show. Right. Because I couldn't get staffed on a show. And so I didn't really even know how to run a show because I never learned how to run a show because I had never, never been, been at on a show. I never even visited a show. <laughs> <laughs> I used to visit SNL when you were there in the early and that 90s. And was a great show. Uh, I, yeah, I got, well, Ben's a genius, so I got very lucky. But I remember visiting the SNL offices when, when Adam was there in the early 90s. And I found it a terrifying space for a stranger to walk into. I guess so. It was very intimidating, especially then because they were the original people who had been there for a long time and a lot of the young knucklehead people and you felt the factions and you like it was just a weird moment for the show in the early 90s and it scared the crap out of me. I think I don't think it's gotten any uh, less scary for people trying yeah. to. In fact, it, now it's gotten staff in my mind is mm-hmm. a little too big. Yeah, so there's a lot of people working there. You're saying. Yeah, in other words, too many writers, too much cast. Yeah, cast doesn't get a chance to really, you know. When we had Jane Lorraine and Gilda, <laughs> yeah. uh, Danny, uh, Chevy, uh, Belushi, and Garrett, that was it. Yeah, and every one of them got to play a child and got to play an old person and, yeah. or, and everything. everything in between. And when you have 17 cast members, which I think I counted last time I counted at the opening, everyone is slotted with a, uh, you know, you're the one who does this, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and it's like, no, you, you want everybody to grow. Most weight loss plans are one size fits all, not taking into account each person's individual needs. Noom takes into account dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs to build a plan that works for you. Everyone's journey is different, so your daily lessons are personalized to you and your goals. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your free trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When we did the Ben Stiller show, when we started it, Ben had just been at the at Saturday Night Live. He was on, I think, four episodes as a feature player, and, and he wanted to make short films and they they weren't mm-hmm. built to do that at that time, and he just felt like it wasn't the right fit for him. And Bob Odenkirk had just worked there for a long time and left. And so we were very aware about how Saturday Night Live was run. And so we said, well, what could we do different with our sketch show mm-hmm. uh, to learn from their experiences? And one thing we said was, well, let's have a tiny cast for that reason. So it was just Ben, Bob Odenkirk, 
uh, Andy Dick and Janine Graffalo. That was the whole cast. And we're mm-hmm. like, well, they'll all be happy. They won't hate each other. They don't have to compete to get on the show because there's only four of them. And we'll have a smaller writing staff. And if a sketch is good but not great, instead of tossing it, we will punch it up until it's ready to be shot. Uh, and we, we made all these adjustments. Crazy. Oh, yeah. This oh. is crazy yeah. talk. So we made all these adjustments <laughs> based on what people told what, us what you could do better. Where there? you needed eight people in the sketch or seven well, people in the sketch. Well, there's a limitation of the show right there. And that would happen where we'd say, oh, let's, let's get our friend you know, Dana Gould to show up for this. And so we made all these changes to, to improve on the system at Saturday Night Live. And the result was... Uh, we were canceled after 12 episodes. Yeah. So I can't Lauren speak against. Been on, <laughs> Lauren has been on for 44 years. Yeah. So yeah. I, uh, I came to realize he's, that he was right about everything, whatever it is. In, year, in fact, this is year 45 starting. I know. And uh, no, he, he uh, is amazing. And when I, uh, when I was a kid, uh, you know, I've always been obsessed with the show to this day. But when I was a kid, I was interviewing comedians. Uh, for my high school radio right. station, and, and that became the book. That became the book, and I and I decided. Tell me the name. It was of the called book. Sick, sick in the Head. head. Yeah, sick, sick in the head. head. Okay, there you so go. So you get Sick in the Head. You can get the It's Carrie Shandling's book. These are your purchases after this. But I decided to try to interview the original writing staff of Saturday Night Live, and I interviewed Alan Zweibel, who mm-hmm. gave me your phone number or Tom Davis's phone number. Yeah, and I went and interviewed you, you guys. Right. At uh, Broadway Video, mm-hmm. maybe 1983, okay, 84. Okay. And what happened was you were late. You were uh-huh. late. So I talked to Tom for a long time about all the things that you were doing. You guys had just left the show. Uh-huh. And so we talked for like 30, 40 minutes without you. But I was out of questions about what you guys were doing currently. Right. And so then you sat down and all I had was questions about... What, Saturday Night Live, yeah, yeah. and you you were not pleased. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, you know, all that's. Uh, I was late. You're I was late. late. That's my yeah. fault. And I was unprepared as an interviewer. But that was a great moment. I still have your guys' autographs from that moment. And then I, you know, I talked to Ann Ann Beats and Marilyn Suzanne Miller, and I interviewed Downey. And so I I, uh, I was a fanatic since then. And then I interviewed Michael O'Donoghue. Mm-hmm. And I, I was in Cal. I visited California at sixteen and. And that was uh, remarkable because he had just left the show. And what was he doing in California? I guess he was writing screenplays. He's such a, he's such a New York guy. And he, and he had just left the show. He was the head writer one of the years of the Eddie Murphy. And he went off on the show for 10 minutes. And I'm a child with like a big tape recorder. For a, <laughs> this isn't going to air anywhere. And he went on this diatribe about what was wrong with the show. And then he went through every cast member and, and said what he thought of them. And it was so cruel. <laughs> like he described the weaknesses of every cast member. The, the thing about Mr. Mike was that if you got a compliment from him, mm-hmm. if he wrote something and he went, yeah. that was really good, you went like, holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> wow. What he was he like books. in the office, though? Just hanging out in the office all day with him. Well, you know what? There was a brutal honesty around the office that was not a bad thing because it did make you write up to a standard or try to. And it was okay in the office to uh, savagely (laughs) uh, criticize uh, uh, something. 
And uh, but you also then had the responsibility to help make it better. Yeah. What I always think about now that I'm uh, in my fifties, that you, you know, you start out and there's all these groups, and then over the decades you see all the groups splinter, sometimes in uh, in just you know drifting ways, sometimes in hostile ways. But uh, it is the circle of life, I guess. But how is that for you? Because I always think about that, like bands breaking up and friends who don't talk anymore and all of that. I, I basically have kept pretty much all my friends from yeah. there and actually it's it's paying off now <laughs> i mean i had uh you know a lot of people uh who've agreed to do these shows are old old friends yeah and um that's been gratifying i want to talk to you about your daughter maud yes she's on this hit show uh on hbo euphoria and it is um there's a lot of uh drug use and uh very Graphic uh, sex. Yes. And I'm only two and a half episodes in. I can't talk that deeply about it because, you know, I'm a parent. Yes. And, uh, that's that's when I'm. Uh, I, I tend to move very slowly through these shows. I, uh, I'm i only on season uh, three of Game of Thrones right now. I'm the I'm the opposite of a binger. Like, I, I'm aggressively. Yes, I'm, a, I'm, I'm like, <laughs> like, I'll, I'll watch like a Breaking Bad every four months. It takes me, you know, twice really? as long as the show took. To go through some of these shows, and because I like well, them. The thing on about Euphoria, yes. which I sampled and, yeah. and watched, it's um, if I were a dad yeah. and my daughter were on uh, Euphoria, I would be very supportive. Yes, but I would be very uh, going like, oh no, <laughs> oh, not really. Oh come on, guys. Don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I always think about you know parents who were, who didn't want their kids to watch Elvis shake his hips. You know, you, 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 you always feel like you become that at some point. That the that you know the the times are changing. And I remember when we were working on Superbad and Seth and Evan wrote it, and we were trying to get someone to make it, and people were like, "You can't have high school kids curse," and it was very difficult to get oh, my it funded. Lord. And now oh we're Lord. in a whole new era where uh, high yeah. school kids uh, can be portrayed more honestly or creatively. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> luckily, my daughter plays the good girl on the show. <laughs> so I'm sure I have a different experience than other parents of, of the cast. But I think what uh, Sam Levinson, the um, creator and writer of all the episodes, is trying to get at is uh, the feelings that kids have these days. It's certainly, it's intensified. But, you know, kids watch it and they don't have the reaction we have to it, even though their school probably isn't exactly like that. Like it has everything in the one school. Uh, They're under pressure. They have a lot of anxiety. They're dealing with social media and tension and drugs in a way that wasn't like when when I was a kid in the 80s. And it this reflects their experience. Freaks and Geeks reflected my experience. Right. I just. Yeah, I, I, I don't. Want my like my grandkids to go to that high school. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. Exactly. Yes. You know, yeah. I uh, the oldest is uh, six. Yes. Now, well, can you imagine what show that six year old will be watching? I know. In, 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 in ten years, uh, yeah, I'll be going like, you know, in my day, you know, when I was first a grandpa, it was Euphoria was on, and that was a 
you know, a, at least a show that <laughs> kids could watch. <laughs> and now, now you got this thing. I think also kids like, uh, you know, things pushed to the edge, I guess, in a way. Saturday Night Live, uh, when it started, was, you know, pushing an edge people hadn't seen we were, before. We were a counterculture. Yeah. And I think that's, show. And that's always happening. And it's like why kids liked Nirvana or punk rock. I think that euphoria is connected to that same type of interest you have at a certain age. And it's also interesting as a parent to see your child do great creative work that gets in the zeitgeist and, and watch her entry into the, the business. Because I always felt like, God, I hope I'm not making a mistake asking her to be in my movies and having Iris in the movies. But I think they did learn a lot and hopefully they're savvy enough to be able to handle a really brutal business. Yeah, and you'll be able to know every damn thing they go through. Yes, well, they're is, they're talkative. I think it's well, bad not, when not you have just, kids who don't tell you anything. Yeah, but no, no matter what, you you've been in the business, so you'll be able to see, you'll be able to know every disappointment they have. Yes, yes. Yeah. Well, so, I've, you know, they've seen me cry when the box office office grosses come in. Moto always says one of the worst moments of her childhood was us on vacation in Hawaii and me finding out how little Walk Hard made that weekend. And she just saw me go from like a good mood walk to Hard really- was a, a parody a, of- uh, Walk the Line and Ray, yeah. which I loved and it's become a bit of a cult movie, but it didn't open well, uh, to say the least. And she just said the look on my face caused her great trauma as a child to see me affected that way. But And what's funny is in my head, I thought I handled it very well. Yeah. But to a child, to see your parent disappointed, I guess, uh, was uh, had, had impact. Okay. Well, I'm really interested in seeing uh, uh, Gary Goldman's uh, his special. And uh, I'm glad that, you know, that someone who uh, has gone through this is sharing that. And I think that's that's good for everyone. Uh, and a brave thing for him to do, but I, I maybe he has no, maybe it isn't such a brave thing. Maybe this is just a good thing for him to do. I don't think he thinks of it as a brave thing to do. I think that as a comedian, he just talks about his life, and this is what he went through, and he wants to share it with people. And he definitely felt like in the past his act wasn't this personal, and he also didn't know if people. And, would and uh, yes, I heard him say, or I read that he, he him say that it made his act much better. You kind of want to uh, have a big piece of yourself in your act. Sure. Well, he didn't know if it was relatable. He's like, I don't know how many people have been in the psych ward. I don't know how many people have been depressed to this extent. And I think what he found out was that even if they haven't had these exact experiences, they definitely relate very deeply with what he's been through. And that it just made him funnier. And I, I always think if you open your heart and tell people your stories, you're, you're going to connect more and the work will be better and the relationship with the audience will be better. And that's something that I, I learned from Gary because I never heard that till I met Gary. Shandling. Oh, you share your life. You share your feelings. You go as deep as you can. And that's how you do your art. I, I had never heard of that. It helped that he was an amazing joke writer. Yeah, yeah no, the best, the best. <laughs> he was uh, a master joke writer, and you won the Emmy for that uh, special on him. Was for the docu documentary, documentary yes. on him. Yeah, no, and I'm, I'm just so glad that there's a way for people to get to know him. 
that's what the movie, yeah, I mean, right. the documentary, the book is about, which is, I felt like I was lucky to, you know, to be mentored by him and to know him so well. And it would make me sad if all that information I got from Gary mm -hmm. just disappeared with Gary. So the fact that there's this documentary in a book and you could learn everything I learned from Gary uh, makes me feel very gratified. And I'm happy for people because it will change people's lives. There will be something in the book that Gary's writing about in his journals that people will read and it will change how they look at things. You know, there's a page I found in a, in a journal and it just said, maybe your comedy is a gift to be given to help people through this very difficult life with no hope for getting anything in return. And, you know, the, when you're young and entering this business or a creative life, that's life-changing to hear that. Like, maybe you don't do this for ego. Maybe you don't do this for money. Maybe it is about sharing something and connecting with people. And uh, I'm glad that I can help get that out there. Or maybe you get paid a lot and you marry <laughs> Leslie Mann. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, Judd, thank you for doing this. Thank you My for pleasure. taking time away from uh, your editing. Yes, the editors don't want me in the room because I, that's I, what I, I interfere. That's what I, I, I you felt that. I felt that they're good at their jobs, and they're like <laughs> they're they're editors working on different scenes, and yes. you go from one room to the other. And um, they want me to leave. They, do I mean? Would you at work want someone just over your shoulder all day long telling you what was wrong and you know, type that, move that? And so I, I'm an irritant. So they want to do a good job they, because they that means to, I'm gone. They want to be the artist. They want to be. They uh, understand you. They've worked with you before. All they want to be in a room that I'm not in. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Judd. Yes, thank you. All right. Well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader, too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro... Cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. The early 2000s was a breeding ground for bad reality competition series. From shows like Kid Nation, CBS's weird Lord of the Flies-style social experiment that took 40 kids to live by themselves in a ghost town, to The Swan, a horrifying concept where women spent months undergoing a physical transformation and then were made to compete in a beauty pageant. Hi, I'm Misha Brown, and I'm the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each episode, comedians join me to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? Recently on The Big Flop, we looked at the reality TV show, The Swan. 
the problem. This dream opportunity quickly became a viewing nightmare. They were isolated for weeks, berated, operated on, and then were ranked by a panel of judges. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts.